0: From WAMU 88.5, this
1: is Metro Apocalypse. The DC Metro uh, historically has been a great strength
2: of this region. Customers should expect extended delays and crowded conditions on trains and... They had the money available, what they have is incompetence. I've been stuck on a Metro
1: train for two hours underground.
0: I'm Martin DeCaro and I'm Martin Ostermuller.
1: Coming up, some Metro riders are trading in their smart trip cards for bike helmets. Plus, the ins and outs of SafeTrack are tough enough to understand if you speak English. But what if you don't?
0: And how amateur-run Twitter accounts are filling the information vacuum on Metro Rail. So, Martin, let's start this episode by going back in time a little bit. Back to April twenty-third, twenty sixteen. It was a Saturday night, and both you and I were on Twitter, seeing events transpire from the Red Line tunnel. At Friendship Heights, something scary happened.
2: There were two or three of these, I don't want to call them explosions, I think that's a little too dramatic, but clearly whatever was burning in front of us, and you could hear it, it was loud, and you could see the smoke.
3: You can't even imagine what people are going through until I saw it myself. It was like chaos in there. It was like people were, you know, like jumping on seats, getting past
2: each other. It was chaos.
1: That was writers Sarah Allowey and Chuck Holmes, who happens to work for NPR. And we now know that the incident was caused by a foreign object that dislodged from the Red Line train and made contact with the third rail. But at that moment in time, you're down in a tunnel. Smoke
0: is starting to fill the lead rail cars. It's scary and confusing. And from the passenger's point of view, it's not even clear the train operators know what's going on. Here's how Holmes
2: describes
0: what he was told.
2: Obviously panicked, told everybody we needed to walk to the back of the car. Um, We asked him why. I directly asked him why. And he wouldn't answer.
0: So the story has a good ending. Eventually, the train did reverse course. It offloaded at Tenleytown. No one was seriously injured. But what's important to remember at that moment in time, the train just sitting there in a tunnel. There's smoke. And the only place Chuck Holmes finds accurate information about what's happening is a Twitter feed called at Rail Transit
1: Ops. And in fact, the guy we're about to meet was really the only person posting accurate information about what was happening at the time. And he's not even a Metro employee. His name is Steven Rapetsky. I was in my room, I was just, uh, Saturday night. I was cleaning or something. I went out and bought a, a scanner so I can get digital radio. Partly for the air traffic control, because that's another sort of hobby of mine.
0: So you're at home on a Saturday mm-hmm. night, and you're listening to Metro Radio Scanner Traffic. That's how you found out about this?
1: The, I think, yeah, part of it, and then... You
0: can admit it. <laughs> <laughs> so Stephen is one of three guys who runs at Rail Transit Ops, along with Roger Bowles and James Pizarro. James also runs his own Twitter feed, at DC Metro Hero, which is also an app. And you will find Stephen tweeting at Metro Reasons. It's all part of a Twitter ecosystem that riders are increasingly relying on. And I spoke with them last week at a Metro board meeting. Here's James explaining how he first got involved.
1: So it was a pretty organic thing. Everyone's been there where they're riding a train and it doesn't move for a very long time. And I figured I would like to know the reason maybe why that's happening. It's very hard to get that information while you're on the train. Uh, So that was sort of the motivation for designing something that would actually show you where the trains are so that as a rider you have that information that I didn't have on my fateful Rosalind trip when I was stuck in the Rosalind Tunnel.
0: So you got stuck in the Rosalind Tunnel one day and that's why you wanted to do this? Pretty much boils down to how that started,
1: yeah. And you work in IT, so you know how to do these things. Yes, software engineer and uh, I knew that I could probably take what Mamata offers in terms of its open data to maybe make the open data a little bit better and then also have this project going on. Steven, you also work in IT,
0: correct? And you created Metro Reasons Twitter feed and you're also putting out information, not just about delays and what's happening on the rails, but Metro information in
1: general? Well, the account sort of stemmed out from taking the information that I was interested in myself uh, and sort of just letting other people know about it.
0: I noticed you really do your homework.
1: That's sort of where, where I fell into uh, staying factual to what is actually happening, not trying to make uh, assumptions or anything about, you know, what, what could be done or what was drawn, done wrong, that type of
2: thing.
0: So Roger Bowles at Rail Transit Ops, you've been a transit enthusiast for a long time, and you seem dedicated to trying to figure out what Metro could do better in any given circumstance that transpires on the tracks.
2: What got me to doing everything was with the growth of social media is people want information, and also to provide recommendations to Metro, whether they take it or not, on alternatives, whether they're out of the box, in the box, just not thought of, on how to create a smooth-flowing operation.
0: Roger, do you feel like you were filling a vacuum?
2: Not necessarily a vacuum, but providing additional information to supplement what will model would issue out. Sometimes information might be delayed, and by scraping Twitter, we'll notice that people are getting more agitated and trying to figure out what's going on. Then we can take the lead and say, this is what's going on.
0: So for these three guys, Martin, it's a hobby. They enjoy doing this, and it's interesting to see how people are relying on them along with Metro's official channels.
1: Yeah, and the thing is, I don't think hobbyists like this do this because they love doing it necessarily. They're, they're doing it because they're filling a void, like you said, they're filling a vacuum. And especially, you see this in the region. There's a lot of government agencies, the, D, the DC Police Department, the DC Fire Department. They don't communicate particularly well over Twitter or, or use social media to get information out. So you have people stepping in to do it for themselves.
0: So, Martin Metro surveyed their customers about where do you get your information, where do you keep informed about safe track service changes. And Wamada.com, fifty-two percent. Newspapers, twenty-six percent. Word of mouth, ten percent. Wamada Twitter, only sixteen percent. I asked Lynn Bauer who runs customer service for Metro, why wasn't you know Unsuck DC Metro on the list. Do you feel like you're playing catch up when it comes to some of these other sites that are or channels that are very popular?
1: So it depends on the. Comparable. So when you look at other transit
0: agencies, Metro is pretty far ahead of where many are with respect to social media information sharing, not customer service. Nobody's really doing full-scale customer service in the transit industry yet in the way that we're anticipating doing it. Um, but this is a Twitter town, to be sure. And while only 4% of our customers say that they are on Twitter and getting information that way, um, we uh, do need to service that community. So Metro doesn't really want to publicly acknowledge Twitter accounts like Unsuck and Fix Wamata that have large followings that are pretty critical of the way they do things. But uh, this will be a test for Metro because communication has not always been great. We're not just talking about, um, you know, going to the website and finding something or looking at the WMATA Twitter account and finding out that there's a delay on the red line. Talking about in stations when you're on the platform. Do the station managers know what's going on? Are the overhead announcements accurate? When you're on a train, is the operator going to tell you timely information when something happens?
1: I mean, to me, that's a more basic problem. I've been on trains where there have been problems. The train has stopped. We're waiting in a tunnel, but there's no communication from the operator himself. Or he may be trying to communicate and the speakers don't work. So beyond getting tweets about what's happening on a train I'm stuck on, I want the operator to be able to tell me.
0: We here at Apocalypse have compiled a list of Metro-related data sources, official, unofficial, and we're going to post it on our Facebook group page. And speaking of that Apocalypse Facebook group, when we get back, we'll tackle two questions from listeners. We'll continue on the communications theme, exploring how the disruptions are affecting immigrants with limited English skills. And we'll look at whether the maintenance surge is leading to an upswing in biking in northern Virginia when we continue.
3: it's diane the next meeting of my book club is on wednesday may 31st at 1 p.m eastern i'll host a discussion of mad honey by jody pico and jennifer finney boylan followed by a conversation with the authors find out more and register at dianeream.org slash book club
1: This is Metropocalypse, and I'm Martin Ostermule.
0: And I'm Martin DeCaro. And you know, Martin, there are a lot of moving parts with this year-long safe track maintenance blitz. We have 15 different safety or maintenance surges. It's going to play out in a lot of ways. We have packed platforms and trains. There's going to be bus bridges when line segments are shut down, Uh, new schedules to adapt to. Imagine navigating all of these changes. You're new to the entire rail system, and English is not your native tongue. And we got
1: two questions about this very issue on our Facebook group from Shoshana, Michelle and Joanna Pierce. How is Metro conducting outreach to non-English riders? So we have a couple
0: of copies of the pamphlet that Metro has been handing out. It does include Spanish, but Metro estimates there are 26 languages spoken on its rail system. Besides that, just printing signs in Spanish wouldn't count as effective outreach. One of our listeners recommended that we speak to our next guest, Hollyanne Friso-Moore. She's a principal with Carlos Rosario International Public Charter School, the Harvard Street Campus. It's the country's first charter dedicated to adult learners, serving about 2,000 D.C. residents, most of whom are immigrants with limited English skills. We started by asking her how she would grade Metro's outreach to her students.
3: Well, from our perspective, Metro is doing a great job. There is, of course, always more that can be done. But I was very glad to have Dulce Carillo, who works with Metro. She's their diversity compliance officer, I believe. And she approached us around a year ago and has done great things for us. They even did a field trip for our school. And what they did for us was said, could we have students that you think would benefit from an orientation to Metro bus and rail? And we did. We had a, a large population that could that they took on a bus trip and also through the metro to give them an orientation to that process.
1: One question I have, and this is going to sound very basic, but sometimes I think getting to the, the root of it requires a very basic and somewhat stupid question. But sure. someone could say, well, listen, it's the metro system. This isn't rocket science. You go in one direction, you go in the other, you take one bus, you, you know, you uh-uh. get to your destination. What is it about getting metro to communicate in so many different languages that's important?
3: Well, for our students, it's not just about the language. It's about the concept of the metro itself. Uh, Even map reading, basic map reading is difficult for a lot of our students that in their own countries do not have that type of service and do not use maps in that kind of way. So it's more than just um, the translation. It's also about being able to communicate clearly and effectively to to immigrants that that struggle with the, the concept of the metro. Does that make sense? And does that get at what you're asking me?
1: Yeah, no, it absolutely does. And just kind of a personal story. So I've lived in Latin American countries, and I know there's definitely countries where you hail a bus wherever you want to. They don't have set mm-hmm. stops. And a lot of times the routes are kind of made up as the bus driver goes along. So I kind Correct. of understand that explaining that, you know, this bus is going to go from point A to point B and stop in these locations along the route, or this train goes from point A to point B, that sort of stuff. I mean, the concept of, of transit and mass transit also has to be explained. That's
3: correct. And even the way that the bus system works with the, the lettering, right? So the H6 is different from the H8. Uh, all of those things can, and that they have different stops along the way or they may take a different route. Uh, those are hard concepts as well. Of course, that's woven into our curriculum in some very small measure. But our students do have trouble and, and have expressed frustration uh, at stations where they cannot find someone to communicate to help them.
0: She's the principal at Carlos Rosario International Public Charter School. Holly Ann Friso Moore is joining the Metro Apocalypse today and the SafeTrack program is going to extend into next spring. So schools almost out now, but you know some students of course do use the transit system in the summer and then when the red line gets shut down in October for 23 days between Noma and Fort Totten, uh, I know that schools are very concerned about that. Where's your mind at?
3: Well, for us, our students are adults, so just because school is out, they still have to get to work. They still have to get their children to camps to babysitters, so they will still be using the rail system, and I know that they will be frustrated at extended wait times, and we've been warned that there will be extended wait times not only for trains, but that buses will also be impacted with increased ridership as well. So we're doing the very best that we can to explain this to our students and to make sure that they are aware of that. And many of them cannot telecommute to work, which has been the suggestion given by Metro, uh, or change their schedule around in order to to deal with the safe track upgrades that are going on. So it, it, it is going to be a burden for our students.
0: Principal Holly Ann Friso Moore of the Carlos Rosario International Public Charter School. Thanks for joining us on the Metro Apocalypse and well good luck getting through Safe
2: Track.
3: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure, guys.
2: When we continue, the biking option. If people need consistency, biking is going to be your, your best bet to know exactly how long it's going to take you to get from home to the office or for any other trip for that matter.
1: We'll explore whether the safety surge is leading to a cycling surge. Some cyclists say they're already seeing an increase in the traffic along the bike trails, but we'll check, does the data back it up? Stay with us.
3: is Jillian Burgess. I commute every day on a bike from the Cherrydale neighborhood of Arlington. Since SafeTrack started I have seen a steady stream of people on bikes. Normally, you know, at the intersections, on the streets where I would maybe see one other cyclist or I would expect to be the only cyclist, I'll see five to 10 other people on bikes. My big question is, we know that there's a big increase on the trails. What are they seeing on the streets? And um, we've seen this huge increase of cyclists. Have we seen any change in the number of collisions?
0: You're listening to Metro Apocalypse. I'm Martin DeCaro with Martin Ostermule. Every week on this podcast we take your questions, comments, observations, commiserations about what's happening in your daily commute, and we
1: run them by elected leaders, policymakers, and transit experts. So we took Jillian's question about bike ridership to Henry Dunbar from Bike Arlington.
2: So since Monday, uh, June 6, which is the first day of uh, the first surge, we have seen tremendous increase in bike usage overall around the county. Um, we've got about 30 different counters in the ground checking the trails and streets around the county and using four of those as we select um on the various trails, we've seen between 70 and 90% increase in bicycle usage um, compared to June of 2015. And um, we know anecdotally, too, we're hearing from a lot of people that are trying bike commuting because of the surge and anticipation of the crowded uh, metro platforms.
0: All right. So the data say that there is a mini surge. What does it look like? Well, it's not uniform, of course. Some of the new bike stations along the western edge of the current surge have not been heavily used, but the bike stations on the eastern edge in the urban core are being used. Here's Henry Dunbar again.
2: So in Arlington County, we've been looking at it uh, in anticipation. Again, we added a brand new station at the East Falls Church Metro um, it has not seen very heavy usage. Uh, we also increased the capacity at uh, the Boston, the station nearest the Boston Metro and the two stations nearest Rosalind. So looking at that data, uh, bike share usage around the county has been up between you know, 20 and 50 percent, which is good. Um, but those stations that we thought we'd see very heavy usage at, we really haven't seen. But what about Jillian's question about collisions? What we have seen consistently when bicycle usage increases in a community is that the rate of collisions actually goes down. So with volume, you have more cyclists on the road and obviously there's more chances for, uh, for crashes, but as, as you know, motorists and a cyclist get used to each other, we actually find that people um, have fewer, you know, the rate of conflict actually decreases.
0: That was Henry Dunbar from Bike Arlington talking to Martin Ostermule, who is an avid bike rider when he isn't recovering from a broken shoulder. What's going on with that, man?
1: Well, I fell off a bike.
0: That would explain why you broke your shoulder. And we should note that Martin actually knows Jillian Burgess through the local riding community. And as far as we know, she has not broken her shoulder. This has been metro Apocalypse. Next week, the second surge begins. A shutdown of three lines, orange, silver, and blue, between Minnesota Avenue, Benning Road, and Eastern Market. I'll be there bright and early on day one with Martine Powers from Politico. We'll also talk to Prince George's County Executive and Baker about how his county is preparing, or not. metro Apocalypse is produced and edited by Brendan Sweeney, Joe Arminski, Chris Chester, and John Ogolnick, with help from Zaid Shcherbaji. Our engineer is Timmy Olmsted. Andy McDaniel is WAMU's director of content. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. All the music from today's episode came from WAMU's Capital Soundtrack project to showcase local musicians. You heard tracks by AXB, Y Told, and Supper Club. Be sure to check out the Capital Soundtrack project at bandwidth.wamu.org. Until next time, I'm Martin DeCaro.
1: And I'm Martin Ostermule.